All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning to our, to our continuing study of the book of Acts. If you could, in the back of the room, just give a thumbs up if you can hear me. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Acts 18. Acts chapter 18. Now I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, we come today, Lord, and we want to thank you for the privilege of giving attention to this God-breathed book, this book that you have breathed out, Lord. And you allow us to do that every week, Lord. And we want to remind ourselves, God, that apart from this book, Lord, we would have no saving knowledge of you at all, Lord. But you're a God of grace. And you're a God who has revealed himself in Christ, Lord. And you've given us your word. And you've told us that all scripture is breathed out by you. And Lord, we ask God that as we open your word this morning, that you would fill up this time, Lord, with edification. God, thank you that you say that all Scripture is God-breathed, but it's also profitable, Lord, that it makes a difference in our life. It's not a word that falls to the ground in vain. Your word bears fruit. Your word is effective. Your word accomplishes its purpose in the earth and in our life, God. And we pray that you'd have your way with us through your word today, King Jesus. We pray that you would teach us, Lord. And that you would reprove us, God, with your word. That you would correct us. That you would train us in how to live a righteous life that pleases you, Lord. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters today that are hearing your word, God. And I know that some of them, Lord, are discouraged and downcast. God, they're beaten down by situations in their life and by the lies of the devil. God, I pray that you would cast all discouragement under the feet of Jesus this morning, Lord. That you would use your word to make a difference, God. To build us up and to make us strong. God, we ask this in the name of Jesus today. Amen. Amen. As we make our way to Acts 18 this morning... I want to remind us that one of the things that we know is true in the Christian life, and we know this by experience, it doesn't take long um, being in Christ to figure this out, that every disciple of Jesus, every disciple of Jesus is going to pass through seasons in their life where they need encouragement to continue serving Jesus Christ. Every disciple. And that's true for us all across this room. Because every disciple is going to meet different circumstances in your life that are very hard. Trials of various kinds are going to come your way. And you're going to find yourself in those moments in need of some encouragement from Christ. Even even to continue serving the Lord Jesus. And another way to say all that is that every Christian needs seasons of revival You need seasons where God breathes life into you again, where He restores you. 
And our passage today is full of hope for disciples like that, for weary disciples that need encouragement. Because one of the things we're going to see in our text in Acts 18 today is that even the Apostle Paul himself needed encouragement. And we're going to see that even the Apostle Paul enters into seasons where he's tempted to throttle back in his walk with Jesus Christ. He enters into seasons where he is experiencing weakness in his walk with God and he needs encouragement. So one of the things that means, and we need to learn this well, is that even those among us who burn like a torch for the glory of God, and there are those among us who do that, that you burn with passion for Jesus Christ, that you are like a blazing torch for the glory of God. And our reminder is that even you, even burning torches, you're going to enter into seasons in your life where you need that torch relit for the glory of God. And only Christ can do this. And the good news that we're going to see in this passage is that one of the ways that God has revealed Himself to us in His Word is He calls Himself a God of revival. He's a reviver. He is the one who lifts up our countenance. He's the one who reminds us where our help comes from. And He fills our hearts with encouragement. To continue serving Jesus Christ. Hold your place in Acts 18. And I want to read a verse in Isaiah 57. One of the ways that God described himself. And I want to get this in front of us before we dive into this passage. Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Who inhabits eternity. And whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. Listen close. To revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. This is who our God is. He's a, he's a reviving God. This is what He does. And so with this in view, let's read our text together in Acts 18. You go ahead and turn there. I'll begin reading Acts 18, verse 1. And we're going to go this morning to verse 17. Please read these words with me. After this... Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, 
Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are of my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a unified attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Kaleo paid no attention to any of this. This is the Word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. And as we studied the book of Acts, we made our way today to the Apostle Paul coming into the city of Corinth. And so he he lands there in verse 1. And this is a very famous city in the Roman Empire. It's the capital city of this region that was mentioned later in this passage, Achaia. It's a a large city. It's an influential city. Uh, It was known throughout the Roman Empire for mainly two things. The city of Corinth was a wealthy city. A lot of money in this city. A lot of resources in this city. There, There were reasons why it was a wealthy city. There were two ports attached to this city. Um, On each side of this city, it had access to two different seas. And what that means is is that it opened up international markets and trade in Corinth. And there was all kinds of wealth and resources flowing into this city. It was an international city, a blending of cultures. And in a very real sense, you could find all the pleasures of the world in Corinth. It was a wealthy city. Corinth is also known throughout the Roman Empire as a wicked city, an immoral city to the core. Um, the main reason for this is that in this city, the, temp- the temple of the false goddess uh, Aphrodite is sitting on top of a mountain in the middle of Corinth, a hill several hundred feet high. And on top of this hill, this false goddess named Aphrodite has a temple. The whole city is organized around the worship of this 
false goddess. And historical sources tell us that up to a thousand female slaves serve as prostitute priestess in the, the temple of Aphrodite. And every night they make their way out into this city to serve as prostitutes looking for worshipers of Aphrodite. Known throughout the Roman Empire as an immoral city. In fact, sexual and homosexual sin is so rampant in Corinth that they coined a Greek word. And to Corinthianize in the ancient world was synonymous with to commit sexual immorality. How's that for a nickname for your hometown? Okay, This is an immoral city to, to the very core. And so one of the things that, that's encouraging just on the face of it, before we dig into the details of Acts 18... It's an encouraging reminder to us today that we're being reminded that the gospel took root in this city. That's the big thing that's happening there, that the gospel, the power of God unto salvation makes its way into the one, of, one of the wickedest cities in the ancient world, and it, and it takes root in this city, and it bear, bears fruit and increases. And that ought to encourage us that the gospel really is that powerful, no matter where you're at, no matter where you find yourself on planet earth, even in wicked Corinth, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Corinth is also a reminder for us in, in, in a lot of ways of the needs of our modern world. Okay, The gospel making its way into these influential cities in the book of Acts. And here's what I mean by that. The United Nations has some projections that they've made on the populations of people and the best that they can come up with is they project, UN projects, that by the year 2050, listen close, 75% of the population of planet Earth is going to live in urban areas, not in rural areas. That trend is known as something called urbanization. And this, this presents some, some, some great commission's needs for the body of Christ. And here's what I mean. If that trend continues, and we're seeing massive gatherings of people in these urban areas, away from rural areas, then what that means for the church of Jesus and for us as a local church if that trend continues, then it's going to be increasingly more important in the coming decades that we take direct aim for global cities just like this. Just like Corinth. Why? Because that's where the lost people are going to be. It's going to become increasingly more important if these trends continue. And we have tremendous hope laid out for us in Acts 18 that as we take aim... As, at these cities, and as we target these cities in missionary, missionary endeavors, the gospel is powerful enough to take root in major cities, in global cities, and even in wicked cities like Corinth. Like Corinth. So Paul makes his way into this city, and then in verse 2, he makes a connection with a missionary couple named Priscilla. And Aquila. 
And I'll just mention this really briefly, that this couple is a, is a really good example for every married couple in this room, okay? And I know this, and we all better know this, that not everybody gets the blessing of a spouse who loves Jesus too, okay? But every Christian marriage ought to be striving for husband and wife both serving the Lord together. And this is a really good picture of that. Priscilla and Aquila. This couple appears in several different books of the New Testament. And not only that, they, they appear in several different places. They show up in Rome, show up in Corinth, they show up in Ephesus. They're, they're all over the place. They're a missionary couple. They're a really faithful couple. couple. They're using their marriage. They're using their life to glorify Christ. And Paul makes this connection with this couple in verse 2. And we're told that they're, you know, freshly arriving in Corinth because something happened in Rome. And we're, we're, we're made aware of this, this edict that the Emperor Claudius had made. That he cast out, he, he made all the Jews leave the capital city of Rome. Now... This edict is attested in several extra-biblical historical sources. It's, it's well attested to that this is a real historical thing that the Emperor Claudius did that he made in this period of time, he made for a season of time all Jews leave Rome. And there's some, there's some interesting things to think through about this scenario. Some inscriptions and some historical works tell us the reason why all the Jews were commanded to leave Rome as there was an uproar among the Jews in the city of Rome over a man named Crestus. Crestus. Okay? And the reason that that's really interesting is because that's a Latin transliteration that almost verbatim uh, translates the Greek word Christ. Okay? And so many church leaders from very early in church history have interpreted this event as there was such an uproar in the Jews in Rome over whether Jesus was the Messiah. It was causing such a problem that the Emperor Claudius said, everybody get out of here, and he commanded all Jews to leave Rome. And I just want to put that before you as an interesting historical possibility. Okay? Interesting historical possibility. Nevertheless, Jews were scattered. There was a missionary couple in Rome, and they were sent because of this edict to this city, this wicked city, Corinth. In verse 3, jump right in, and we find out that Paul begins to stay with this missionary couple, and he begins to work with his hands. He takes up a trade. So he's staying with Aquila and Priscilla, and we're told that they have the same trade as tent makers. Verse 4, Paul is working on weekdays, tent making, working with his hands, providing for his needs. And then verse 4 tells us that on the Sabbath, Paul went into the synagogue and he would preach the gospel to Jews and Greeks. And then in verse 5, some additional co-laborers arrive in Corinth in the form of Silas and Timothy. And something about that arrival 
in verse 5 um, causes Paul to be fully occupied with the Word of God. So I want us to dig into this for just a moment. That phrase literally means that Paul was wholly absorbed in the preaching of the Word. Or, or even better, that he was devoted exclusively to the preaching of the Word. And so Luke is telling us in this narrative that Paul had an occupation change between verse 3 and verse 5. That his occupation changed. He was laboring as a tent maker, but something happened and now he's given himself fully to the proclamation of the Word of God. Now, Paul later writes back to this church two letters in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And in one of those letters, there's some light shed on what happens at the arrival of Silas and Timothy that causes this occupation change in Paul's life. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now begin reading in verse 8. Writing to the Corinthian church, Paul says this, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. So what happened when they arrived is they brought money with them. They brought monetary support with them that allowed the Apostle Paul to give himself fully to the ministry. And this gives us a glimpse. This has some implications for how we as a church think about missions and how we do missions. Because I've bumped into an idea before that the, the real way to do missions is you just pay your own ticket, you pay your own way, you don't su take support from anybody. That's the varsity way to do missions. And the JV way to do missions is to raise support, to have gospel partners, and to be sent out um, by local churches. And the thing I want to point out is it's the exact opposite in this text. That we see missions happening either way, fully funded, not fully funded. But this text lays out that the ideal that we're to strive for as a church is that missionaries are to be so supported by churches in other regions that they are set apart to fully do the work of ministry. And we ought to aim to do that several times over as a local church, to send out brothers and sisters in a manner worthy of the Lord, gospel partners among the nations. I think this also helps us as we think about missionaries. So not only as we think about how to do missions, but as we think about how these principles apply to missionaries. One of the things I think this text shows us is that the Apostle Paul is resolved to faithfully serve Jesus Christ, fully funded or not. And we see that in this text. When he's not fully funded... 
We see him preaching to the Jews and the Greeks. He's laboring. He's working. He's doing everything he can to bring people to Christ. When he is fully funded, he's set apart to completely devote himself to preaching the Word of God. Either way, he's faithful. Either way, he's faithful. And at Grace Community Church, this is who we're looking for. These are the types of men and women that we're looking to get behind with support is those who are already doing the work of ministry. Catch that. He's already doing the work of ministry. You can't stop this man from doing the work of ministry. And we want to come behind people like that and set them apart to even more fully give themselves to the work of ministry. And that's an encouragement. It gives you a grid to aim for. If you're a missionary, you're training to be, uh, you want to train, you want to be equipped to be sent to the nations, then one of the things that this text reminds you of is that, that, that you are to be right now immersed in the ministry. You don't wait till you get where you're going to preach the gospel and to make disciples and to seek to bring people to Jesus Christ. You do that now. You're faithful now, and Jesus is faithful to set apart His laborers and to, and to allow them to be fully supported for the work. So this is what we're aiming for. Paul set apart for the work of ministry. And then we find out, and, and this is no surprise to us as we studied through the book of Acts, that he began, when he devotes himself fully to the preaching of the word, his message never changes. And we're told in verse 5 exactly what that message is, that he's testifying to the Jews that the Christ is Jesus. He's devoting his life, his entire life, to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, we find out in Corinth that the Jews began to oppose him. Okay? He's preaching Jesus is the real Jewish Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all the Jewish promises. And there were some in Corinth, some Jews in Corinth, that hated this proclamation. They despised it. And, and the text says that they reviled the Apostle Paul. And we're told that Paul responds to this opposition in two ways. He performs a prophetic act. And then he gives a prophetic word. Look at this in verse 6. Prophetic act. Paul looks at this group. And the text tells us that he shakes out his garment. Okay? And that's a prophetic symbol that things have progressed to such a degree that the Apostle Paul is looking at this group of people and he's saying, I am done with you. I'm done with you. And then he gives a prophetic word. And, and, and that word is your blood be on your own head. And as Paul gives that word, he's alluding to this watchman passage in the book of Ezekiel. That's almost verbatim exactly what is laid out to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33 as God sets him apart as a watchman over the house of Israel. And so Paul sees himself 
in that role of a watchman over Israel. And Paul's saying, I'm innocent. I have done my duty. I have performed my obligations to God and to you. I have warned you. I have even warned you many times. And he's saying, my hands are clean, but because you have rejected this message, your blood is upon your own heads. And this is a reminder for us that our gospel, the true gospel, it includes a call and a warning to turn away from sin. There are many false gospels that are peddled in our culture that all you have to do is say you're sorry. All you have to do is pray this prayer. All you have to do is ask God to forgive you. And you don't have to turn away from sin. No mention of repentance. No mention of a break. The allegiance of sin. That's a false gospel. The Christian gospel is a warning. It's a warning that if you don't turn away, if you don't turn away from sin, if you don't turn to Christ alone for salvation from sin, the Word of God says your blood will be upon your own head. And I want you to think about that this morning. If you're here and you have up to this point in your life, you have not bowed the knee to King Jesus. And the Word of God is telling us today, it's, telling, it's, it's warning every single person who fits that category that on the last day, every single time that you heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ, every nugget of the good news of Jesus that you ever heard in your entire life will be brought forth as a witness against you on the final day and God will say to you, your blood is on your own head. You were warned and you refused to turn. And this also has implications for us. The people of God as gospel preachers who make this gospel known that we have that word, that, that role of a watchman that we must warn out of love And out of obligation, we must warn the wicked to turn from their sins. And God's Word tells us that if we don't, that there is a measure of guilt that we're guilty of. That there's blood that can even be counted towards us. Their blood on our hands. So Paul's saying, I'm innocent. I'm preaching the Gospel. I'm warning you. And they're rejecting it. Paul says, I'm done with you. Verse 7 He says, I'm turning to the Gentiles. And at this point, things begin to escalate very, very quickly. And here's what I mean. Not only did they they hate that gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse (laughs) 7. When Paul says, I'm done with you, verse 7 tells us that he leaves the synagogue. And he goes directly next door to the synagogue and he sets up a missionary outpost next door to the Jewish synagogue. 
And so this gives you a picture into how crazy this man is. He's, he's filled with boldness for Christ. They reject the gospel. He says, I'm done with you, goes right next door and sets up a missionary outpost. Begins, continues preaching Jesus Christ. You think that escalated things a little bit in this city? And not only that, it doesn't stop there. In the same verse, we're told <laughs> that the ruler of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth bows the knee to Jesus, gets saved, hears that proclamation that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, hears all those Old Testament prophecies, comes to this conclusion, Jesus must be the Christ. It can't be any other way. Jesus is the Christ. He's so convinced that he leaves the synagogue, joins up with the church who happens to be right next door to the Jewish synagogue. So not only have the Christians set up this mission right next door, they just came in and stole the leader of the Jews. King Jesus just grabbed their leader from them. And now that leader is prostrate before Christ, worshiping Jesus as God over all. So if that first move was an in-your-face uh, escalating conflict, think about that second move. Think about how tense things are getting in the city of Corinth. And not only that, we're told that many other Corinthians are coming to Christ. They are believing and they're being baptized. They're believing the gospel. Think about how beautiful that is. These are wicked, wicked, wicked men and women. They have feasted upon idolatry, sexual sin, on all the pleasures of the world. They tasted everything that the world had to give them and they landed in this place of emptiness. It didn't satisfy them. And they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this holy moment of time, their hearts were opened by the Spirit of God. And even though they lived one of the most prosperous cities, all the pleasures of the world, at their right hand, and at their left, they heard a far superior pleasure in Jesus Christ. And many Corinthians came to Christ. They repented, they broke away from their sins, and they believed the gospel, and they began to worship and serve Jesus as Lord. So I want us to see this escalating as the gospel has success. The conflict and the tension begins to escalate. And so things at this point, they're like a powder keg ready to go off in this city. The gospel is having success. It's moving forward in power. But the Jews hate it. They hate it. And in the middle of this, this strange season of gospels moving forward, but opposition is rising up. The Apostle Paul finds himself in a season where he needs encouragement to continue serving Christ. I want you to think about that. Jesus appears to him in verse 9. And Jesus appears to him for a reason. There's a reason why Jesus comes to him right here. And so please understand this. The reason is not... Paul doesn't need it. Things are going 
well. Paul's this terminator never needs encouragement. That makes this vision completely pointless. Absolutely pointless. And so there's a reason why the Lord Jesus draws near to the Apostle Paul. And I think we can understand that. If we think about Paul's life and where he's been, there's one thing that's been almost certain in every city that he touches. As the gospel has success, one thing is almost certain to follow. What's that? Persecution. Persecution. And he sees the gospel going forth in Corinth. And he sees that opposition arise. And he needs some encouragement. Even the Apostle Paul to continue serving Jesus. And so what does Christ do? What does Jesus do? Verse 9, we're told that the Lord in a vision of the night speaks directly to the Apostle Paul. Now, the Lord is the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament, but almost exclusively in the New Testament, the Lord is a reference to Jesus, to Jesus. And that ought to be something that you stuff into the back of your mind. Jesus, that same man from Nazareth that died on the cross, is now resurrected to the right hand of God and He's speaking from heaven. He lives. He's not dead. He's addressing the Apostle Paul. Personal words from Christ. Personal words from Jesus Christ. Jesus gives Paul two commands. Two commands. The first is he says this, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now if you've read your Bibles, Genesis to Revelation, then one of the things that you've been made aware of is just how many times that commandment appears in God's Word. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. God has been saying this phrase to His servants for thousands of years. All over, this command appears all over the Bible in every generation. And so these words, they're not new for the Apostle Paul. And I want this to be an encouragement to you. It's not a new thing. Paul knows that he's not supposed to fear. Paul knows that he's supposed to trust God. He knows that God has said, do not Fear, But Jesus decided that these words needed to be repeated to Paul at just the right time in his life. Paul, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Christ is coming to encourage him. To encourage him. Second command that Jesus gives is He says, go on speaking. Verse 9, go on speaking. And do not be silent. Go on speaking and do not be silent. One of the things that we need to learn is that as the gospel that we proclaim and try to make known in our neighborhoods and among the nations, as that gospel is opposed, that opposition has the singular aim of silencing our witness. That's what Satan's all about. He will do anything and everything it takes to shut the mouth. That's the aim of opposition. And Jesus comes and He says, Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about where he's been. 
This is not new information. He knows that's what he's supposed to be doing. He's already been commissioned by Christ as his apostle. Jesus told Paul that you will carry my name to the nations. And you will even stand before kings to bear witness to Christ. He knows this stuff already. Jesus decided that he needed to know it again. So Jesus draws near and he recommissions him. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. He reminds him of his mission and of Paul's role to make Christ known. And one of the things I want us to see is I want us to see the grace of Christ in this text. Think about that. Think about how gracious of a king that Jesus is. He doesn't, he, he doesn't just give commands like a tyrant. Think about Pharaoh, that tyrant king. And he looks out upon those whom he rules and he says, you make bricks and you don't get any straw. Do your work, perform, you get no straw, make the bricks. End of story. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not a hard master. Jesus is not a tyrant king. He's a, he is a gracious king. God is our Father in heaven. And He's coming to Paul with tenderness. He's coming with compassion. He's coming to encourage. And we see this most clearly. And He doesn't just give them commands. He sustains the Apostle Paul with three promises in this text. Beginning in verse 10, Jesus says this to the Apostle Paul. He says, I am with you. I am with you. Jesus is reminding Paul of the the very heart of the covenant promise. That more than anything else, God's people get God. It's the highest gift of the gospel that we could possibly receive. The highest gift of the gospel is we get God as our God. We get God. And the gospel tells us that not only do we get Jesus Christ forever, the good news of the gospel is Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Every day we get Christ. Jesus is reminding Paul, I am with you. I am with you. Promise number two, Paul receives very specific promise of protection. Jesus says, this tension is rising in this city. Jesus says, no one will attack you to harm you. Now, this is not a promise for you to claim on your way to you know, the championship football game. Okay? We need to be aware that there's a really specific context to this promise. This is a very specific situational promise that Jesus is giving to Paul. And we're going to see the fulfillment of this promise even before our passage today ends. Jesus promises, I'm going to protect you in this city. And then Jesus says, promise number three, Jesus says, I have many people in this city. And that's the one that I really want us to camp out on this morning. That in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of weariness, in the midst of seasons where disciples need 
their countenance lifted. Why this? Many people in this city. Jesus is referring to, I want you to think through this, Jesus is referring to people in Corinth that have not yet believed the gospel, yet Jesus calls them His people. I'll say that again. Jesus is referring to many people in Corinth who have not yet believed the gospel, and yet the Lord Jesus is calling them His people. They belong to Him. It's not the first time we've heard language like this in the book of Acts. If you remember back in Acts 13, Acts 13, 48, we were told about a group of people in Acts 13, 48 who were appointed to eternal life. Jesus is talking about the elect in Corinth. There there are some in Corinth who have not yet believed the gospel, and yet they belong to Christ because Christ has chosen them for salvation before the foundation of the world. Now, how in the world is that supposed to be an encouragement? It's presented to the Apostle Paul as an encouragement for him to keep going. Predestination, you know, I thought it was supposed to be something that we argue about. That it, you know, the purpose of predestination is to be about theological conflict. And yet, Acts 18 tells us that the purpose of predestination is to blow our minds with encouragement. How does this work? How does this work? J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he says this. He says, divine sovereignty is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being absolutely pointless. Think about that. It's the one thing that makes evangelism not be absolutely pointless is that God is sovereign over all things. Packer says, without the sovereignty of God, evangelism is a complete waste of time. But what Jesus is reminding the Apostle Paul of in Acts 18 is with the sovereignty of God, with the sovereignty of Jesus, that His mission, His great commission It's absolutely certain, and it can not fail. And what could be more encouraging than that? A missionary on the mission field, and you get words of reminder from the Holy Spirit that this mission that you are a part of, making Jesus known, it cannot fail. Why? Because Jesus says, because I have people in this city. I have people in this city. Now, I want us to notice, take some notes about how revival works in the Christian life. I want us to see how God deals with the Apostle Paul, and I want us to draw some parallels this morning of how we can trust God to deal with us. How does revival work in the Christian life? The Holy Spirit revives us by taking things we already know and driving those things deeper 
and deeper into our souls. I say that again. The Holy Spirit brings revival in our life by taking things you already know and driving those truths further and further into your heart. Think about Paul. He knew the promise of Christ. Paul knew the Great Commission. Can we all agree on that? That Paul knew that Great Commission that Jesus gave his church. And therefore, he knew that 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 commission ended with these words, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Draws near, takes something he already knows, and drives it in. Drives it into his heart further and further. Not only that, Paul knows about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Paul knows about election. He knows that the things that Jesus taught his disciples, which means that one of the things that Paul is already aware of is that good shepherd discourse that Jesus gives his disciples in John 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I have sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and they will come and they must come. He knows that already. In fact, let's turn there really quickly. Let's get one of these promises that Jesus makes in front of us. John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus says this, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus said the elect must come in. The elect will come in. Paul knew this. Paul knew this. Jesus decided that he needed to know it again. Jesus decided that he needed to hear it Again, already aware of it, that these truths need to be driven further and further into his heart. And so what does this doctrine do? How does it produce encouragement in us? We're being exhorted by this passage that we are to spend our lives making Jesus known. Devoting ourselves in whatever way we can to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Why? To bring in those sheep that are not of this fold. That's the exhortation. The encouragement to us is Jesus saying, as you do that, I have many people in this city. They must come. They will come. He calls us into a mission that will not fail. We're being exhorted to spend our life in the Great Commission. And there's a very real sense that this doctrine is meant to convince us that the only way that's bulletproof certainty that you will not waste your life in this world. If you're a disciple and you want to number your days and present to God a heart of wisdom, the only bulletproof way for you to do that is for you to spend your life in obedience to a mission that can not fail. Jesus has many people in this city. He says He was preparing a people in the city of Corinth. And guess what? 
Jesus has been preparing a people in every single generation. It's true even in our generation, and it's true even in this city. And so this is the question for us and the encouragement for us. As disciples of Jesus Christ, being fully convinced of the certainty of this mission, are we going to spend our lives as instruments in the hand of Jesus, trying to bring those sheep in that are not of the fold. Again, this is not something that is new to most of us in the room, and it was not something that was new to the Apostle Paul, but Jesus determined that he needed to hear it again. That he needed to hear it again. We need to learn this about revival and about encouragement. The Christian life, how does it work? Well, one of the ways it works is there's a, there, there's a repetitive cycle that happens where the Holy Spirit takes things that you know intellectually and He works in your heart in such a way that you know those things experientially. That's revival. That's how encouragement comes to us through the promises of Christ, through experiencing those promises through the power of the Spirit. And we, as servants of Jesus, we need that. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. We need that encouragement that can only be produced by the Spirit of God. So let me say this. If, you, if you're here today and you are a weary disciple and you find yourself in a season where you feel like you're unfaithful or less fruitful for Jesus than you want to be. Or even make this sharper. If you look back and you can think back of seasons in your life where you were more zealous, more fruitful, more given over to the mission of Jesus Christ, and you want that back. You want to get reoriented. You want revived. You want your torch lit again for the glory of God. Then I want to encourage you, okay? Now one of the things, one of the dangers is that in this season that you're looking for something new, some new thing, some magic bullet that you've never heard before, and that's not how the encouragement's going to come. The encouragement's going to come from things you already know, things you've heard maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of times in your life. The Spirit of God is going to take these simple, basic promises of the gospel, and He's going to ram them in your heart deeper and deeper and deeper. And so think about this. Think about how simple these promises are that Jesus is even encouraging an apostle with. Promises basic as, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's how the encouragement is going to come. Through the Spirit driving in that promise. Think about how basic that is. And yet, think about this. Who can raise our hand in this room and say, I have plumbed the depths of that promise. I have searched out the riches of the promise of the personal presence of Jesus Christ. No one. No one. You see how simple it is? And yet, do you see how how deep it is? How beautiful it is? What about this promise of the sovereignty of God in salvation? That the mission of Jesus cannot fail. It will not fail. Think about how basic that is. 
And yet raise your hand if you plumbed out all the depths of that encouraging promise from God. Not one of us. Not one of us. Every single one of us look at these simple truths of the gospel and there's enough encouragement to be had in the basic ABC promises of the gospel to revive us over and over again for millions of ages. We're not looking for something new. We're giving attention to this glorious gospel that we already know. That's my encouragement to us. There's promises. There is encouragement for you in the simple truths of the gospel. This is how the Spirit of God works. We're reminded as we close this morning that the promises that God makes to us doesn't just float out in the air as empty promises. God stands behind His Word. And He causes those promises to be fulfilled. And we see an example of that in verse 12 through verse 17. Jesus kept His Word. You can trust the Lord Jesus to keep His Word. And so what happens in this paragraph is that sometime in this year and a half season, the Jews launch into this legal assault. They're assaulting the Apostle Paul. One of the things just to mention is at this point in history, Judaism under Roman law enjoys a privileged position. Okay, It's been given legal protection. The Jews have been given special legal protection to worship the one true God. That means that they were exempt from all kinds of polytheistic laws in uh, in Roman law, they were a licensed religion. It had been like this for quite a while at this point. And so what the Jews are doing is they're coming and they're taking Paul's gospel and they're presenting it to this ruler as a perversion of Judaism. So if there's this licensed Judaism, the real thing, they're saying Paul is perverting it into another thing. Therefore, Paul is preaching an illicit religion. An illicit religion. And what these Jews are trying to do is they want the arm of Caesar, the legal authority of Rome, to be stretched out against the church. And what happens? Jesus keeps His promise. Jesus gave Him that situational, specific promise, no one will harm you. And what we see is that this ruler, Galileo, he refuses to hear the case. They try to bring it before Him and he dismisses it. Dismisses the case. The opposition backfires and a legal environment is created for the gospel to be preached without political backlash in Corinth. Jesus kept his promise. And then look, look at the encouragement here. Okay, When Jesus used this man, Galileo, this is an unjust man. This is not, you know, he's not teetering on the edge of conversion, ready to repent of all of his idolatry and pride. Verse 17, he's an unjust man. He, somebody gets beat by a mob right in front of him in verse 17, and he ignores it. He's not a just judge. What, what, what he is is an unjust man that's being used like a pawn in the hand of a sovereign Jesus that always keeps his promises. Think about how sure and how certain this mission is that Jesus will even use pagans to ensure that his, that his mission continues, that, that His purposes unfold in the earth just as He wills, even if it means using pagans. This is like 
In the book of Isaiah, God uses pagan Cyrus to accomplish his purpose. And in the same way, he uses pagan Galileo in the city of Corinth to accomplish his purpose. That's encouraging for us. That nothing can stand in his way. And there's going to be a church in every generation that's going to bear witness to these truths that our God is faithful. His promises are sure. And we'll close with this verse in Joshua 21, verse 45. You could write this like a banner over this Corinthian mission. It says this, Not one word, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I want to worship you today, Lord, for how you reveal yourself in this text. You've reminded us, Lord, that you are a God of grace and you're a father who loves his children. And you're a king who loves his servants, Lord. God, I pray that these truths about you would well up in our hearts and encourage us to believe you, to trust in you, to rest fully assured, to be fully convinced in your promises and the certainty of what you've called us to do and what you will accomplish in our life. And God, I look out on my brothers and sisters and we ask you, as a local church, that you would use us in this mission, Lord. We believe you, Lord Jesus, that right now and in this moment that you have sheep that are not of this fold. God, I pray for every member of Grace Community Church that you would use them to bring in these sheep that belong to you and don't yet know it, Lord. Use every single one of us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.